Before we get talking about the episode, I just want to talk about Season 5 in brief. If you had asked me a year ago what my favorite season of TNG was, I would probably automatically say Season 3, with maybe a little bit of Season 4 in there. And having gone back through, yeah, okay, I could see why I've made that determination. But um, the thing is, I've been thinking about it recently, and obviously we're not there yet, but if you were to look right here at the list of episodes coming up for Season 5, we've got Darmok, Ensign Rose, Silicon Avatar, Disaster, Unification 1 and 2, uh, Conundrum, Cause and Effect, First Duty, uh, Cost of Living, Perfect Mate, Iborg, Inner Light, Time Zero. All of this stuff is in Season 5. That's a hell of a laundry list. Now, I bring that up because I found myself just kind of laughing. How many of you guys remember my Voyage Ruminations? It's okay, I don't expect most of you do, because they were old and crap. I wasn't even really doing them for the show at the time. I was just some dude sitting chatting about it on my YouTube channel. But I bring that up because if you had asked me some time ago, before I did the Ruminations, what my favorite Voyager se season was, I'd say Season 3, maybe Season 4. But after having gone back through it, it Season 5 was a lot better than I remember. I wonder if we're going to have a bit of history repeating ourselves here. Funnily enough, Season 5 is usually considered one of the best seasons, although, of course, as with all such things, that's subjective and, and dependent on opinion. But I've seen several, several sites, magazines, and just people who all praise Season 5. For the hell of it, I decided to look at what had changed under the hood for Season 5, and it's not actually that much. First of all, Brennan Braga was brought on as a main story editor, which I think was a good move, because as I've said before... Despite certain things, threshold, excuse me, I do actually think Brennan Braga is a fairly talented individual who definitely has a lot of legitimate passion for the work. So, I mean, you know, I feel like I've given my opinion on him plenty of times over in Voyager, so I don't need to repeat that here. Uh, they brought back Wright, who was someone who had worked on TNG back in Season 1, and who apparently, he had done several interviews about this, and he stated that the work environment was just so much better, so much more uh, cooperative, there's a lot more teamwork, there's a lot more uh, discourse. None of the drama or tension or stress of the, the Season 1 problem had been there. Now, I point that out for a reason, because other than that, the only other change is the fact that they introduced uh, Michelle Forbes as Ensign Rolaren. So that's, that's the big changes. <laughs> Nothing else, really. It is my opinion that the, this is a combination of the fact that Braga was pushed up there, because he is a talented individual, and the fact that we got that for whatever reason, and I'd probably give this to Peller more than anyone else, but for whatever reason, we had a much better working environment. So, in general, it was a good working environment. We had some talented people involved, and some good scripts were pulled in, because this was the point in time in which they were getting hundreds of spec scripts at, you know, on a regular basis in order to try and sift through. So they had their pick, so to speak, for episodes to do. Either way... We'll see what we actually, what I actually think of Season 5 as I go back through it. Although, as ever, I'm curious of your thoughts as well. Now, let's go ahead and get to talking about this episode. I've actually already discussed this very point, because this is relevant over on Voyager, but some, one of the downsides of Best of Both Worlds is the fact that it established a precedent. And that precedent is... Okay, we're going to make the season-ender cliffhanger, and we're not going to write both halves in one sitting. We're going to write the first half, then we're all going to take a break. 
Then we're going to come back, and then we're going to write the second half. Now, uh, that kind of worked out for Best of Both Worlds. But as I've pointed out several times, that wasn't really by design. There was just so much in the air, behind the scenes and under the hood, with regards to Star Trek TNG. That's why they didn't write Part 2. It wasn't a deliberate creative choice. But it has established a creative precedent, which, again, would continue forward all the way into the Enterprise era, actually. So Redemption Part 1 was written with no intention or design of Redemption Part 2. Then they came back months later and wrote Redemption Part 2. And it shows. And to be perfectly frank, I think it shows in almost every two-parter that follows the same pattern over the next eight or nine years. I forget exactly how long. But, you know, all, again, all the way up until Season 4 of Enterprise. Which, of course, brings me to my opinion. Now, before we re-watching this episode, I have to admit, I didn't like it. Like, in my memory, this is an episode I usually just kind of skip over. And I know what you're thinking, huh? You know, how, Lore, how could you possibly dislike such a, a valuable, awesome episode of awesomeness? To which all I can say is, well, the data drama, the sensor net, Sela, and Worf coming back to his post with no consequences. All four of those story points bug the, bugged the crap out of me to the point where it, it just detracted from my enjoyment of the episode. Well, having rewatched it with analysis mode on, I could say, yeah, no, there's a lot of serious flaws in the episode. In fact, there was one tiny little thing, and I'm only pointing this out because I feel like I must. You remember how I've made a fuss both other times? They've been like, we can't warp inside a system, because it was once on DS9 and once in Star Trek The Motion Picture. They make a casual reference in this episode, which could be interpreted to the fact that they can't warp in system. Even though, as I've pointed out before, they do warp in system many times in these shows, so... That's another layer of stupid. <sighs> Let's talk about the episode. I'll address these points as we go. So first we have Kern. And, you know, ha-ha! Kern uses strategy to try and pull a win out of thin air. <sighs> I don't want to sound dismissive. I really don't, but there's two points in this episode where Ronald D. Moore, who is the author, basically tries to employ military strategy. How do I phrase this? It's really basic, is what I'm trying to say. It's very obvious that Ronald D. Moore does not have a, you know, experience or is versed in military tactics. Now, that's not really an insult, per se. As I've said many times, it's actually kind of ridiculous to assume that a writer is sufficiently versed in all fields that they're writing for. But this is why creative consultants exist. And that's why that's a regular job. You, why you can reach out and reach out to a science advisor or a biology advisor or a, you know, a physicist or a military tactician or a historian or someone who can add the expertise you, the author, lack so that you now have the information to write it correctly. And, it, and obviously they didn't do this here because the first tactic is I'm going to do this thing off of this bit of flaming inverted oatmeal in order to, to destroy the ships. And the second tactic is, oh no, look, there's a hole in my lines. Both of which are very, you know, base surface level tactics. Now, surface level tactics can work, as any stu uh, student of history can tell you. Plenty of times, base level tactics are very adept at succeeding, usually in a situation in which it's an, you know, everyone's just, and then they look up and they don't really have time to think about the fact that they're being led into a trap, so they just kind of go for it. I mean, for God's sakes, the, the encirclement of a smaller of a larger army by a smaller force was actually a very simple tactic when you think about it. 
But of course, in the moment, nobody could have possibly per perceived that, right? Some of you know what I'm referencing. Anyway, so then we cut to Picard and the Admiral. And Picard says, so the Duras are winning. And she says, none of which is our concern. Now, uh, I'm, not a I'm not fond of slapping people who are not male, but I wanted to slap her for that because that's such a stupid thing to say. I feel like I made this point last episode, but let me reiterate this very clearly. If you were to argue from a moralistic perspective, this is absolutely their problem. There is a functionally evil force being manipulated by an external, also evil force, which is trying to make things worse for everyone involved. This is effectively a clandestine takeover. That is absolutely the concern of the Federation. Or, if you want to look at it from a purely political perspective, this is one foreign nation exerting considerable influence over another foreign nation, which is absolutely your concern. Both perspectives, whether moralistic or political, make this something that the Federation should care about. And yet all her, her only defense is this is by definition an internal matter. I feel I've already made my point on that, so let's just move on to the next point. Um... Picard says he wants to make a blockade. Did you guys know that in real life history, a blockade is actually considered an act of war if it is provoked? To, to put us in a specific words, let's say I set up a blockade of you, and you're made up a stand and I'm made up a stand too. We got really uncreative with our nation names. And <laughs> my blockade is here. That might not be an act of war until it's challenged. If I turn away a ship... Or you try to run it, and I end up destroying one of your ships. And, you know, you can see why this is then a declaration of war, an act of war on my part. And yet, the Federation is going to set up a blockade on the Romulan border. Remember, this is Romulan Klingon side of space. And that's not considered an act of war. It's also worth noting... Later, I'm just going to skip ahead here, because this is dumb. The whole Tachyon net grid plot is dumb. I'm sorry. Because, first of all, the very fact that it works is insane. They actually mention uh, the distance between ships in millions of kilometers, which probably sounds like a long distance. Do you guys know that space is huge? For these ships to be within, you know, millions of clicks of each other means that they are relatively nearby. They're effectively in visual range of each other. And... They're, they've got this net in between them, which means they're covering a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of this border between the Romulans and Klingons. Considering how fast warp one is, which I remind you is the speed of light, it would take the Romulan ships eh, a few seconds, maybe minutes if they wanted to be careful, to go completely around this barrier, left, right, up, or down. This whole we're going to defend the border thing with attack and grid is dumb on every level. Now, upon rewatching with analysis mode on, I noticed that they imply something that the visual effects do not. The visual effects make it look like they've got beams of, of tachyons or whatever going in between each ship. And those beams then are crisscrossed sufficiently so that they have a density enough that a ship would actually have to physically traverse one of the beams to go through thing is that that contradicts the millions of clicks thing because the ships would have to be practically cut, you know, right crammed next to each other for that to actually work, for there not to be a big enough hole for a warbird to get through, right? So that doesn't make sense, visually speaking. However, the dialogue supports the idea that's effectively what's happening, despite the graphics department doing portraying this as the exact opposite, is it's more like each ship is letting out a wave of tachyons from where they are in a full three-dimensional space. 
And thus, instead of it being a web like this, it's more like a sphere like this, which actually makes a lot more sense. This is also supported by several things that are said, like, for example, we're detecting Romulan ship's movement on the other side, which is something O'Brien mentions, even though the other ships are cloaked and nowhere near the field. In other words, they can detect the Romulan ships, despite the fact that they haven't crossed the field. Make sense? However, even if we presume the dialogue makes sense and the effects don't, which we have to because the effects make absolutely no sense, that's still a sphere. They've only slightly increased the range of scanning. And once again, warp one, done. The very concept of this kind of blockade in space is actually insane and should not under any circumstances work. By all means, if anybody else can come up with some way for this to make sense, please share, because I got nothing. I really don't. I, I cannot think of any way in which this could make any kind of sense. The, the closest I've got, and this is, of course, completely contradicted by everything, both visually and audibly, you know, in terms of dialogue in the episode, but the closest I've got is the idea that this blockade is actually light years across and is covering an absolutely ginormous area, and that somehow each ship is sending out a tachyon pulse of dozens of light years in order to scan literally the entirety of the border between the Romulans and Klingons, which is not supported by anything in the episode whatsoever. So... Anyways, moving on. That being said, getting back to the tachyon grid for a second, Sila says, hey, uh, you have 14 hours or bail. That's stupid. I'm sorry to point that out. But as Picard later points out, they have 14 hours or they have to bail or start firing on Romulan ships. Now, that makes a lot of sense because... As I mentioned earlier, a blockade is and can be an act of war, or a declaration of war, right? So the Federation willingly and knowingly blockading Romulan territory could be an aggressive act and could be perceived as a declaration of war. And the Romulans are always the kind of, we'll let you hit us first kind of a group, right? So the fact that she gives them 14 hours, you know, in other words, we're going to sh show that we're the reasonable ones, is very Romulan. The catch is, if she had lowered that time limit, you have one hour, you have two hours, maybe, then she would have probably just flat out caught them, because as Picard makes clear, they're not willing to actually push just the point of war. So if she said, you have an hour, they would have just had to take their blockade and gone home. And that would have been the end of it. And then the Romulans win. But she gives them just almost a day in order to be able to withdraw here, for no other reason other than so that they have the opportunity to catch them in the act, expose them, and then destroy their support of the Duras family, which I'll talk about more later. So anyways... So that's dumb. Let me go and address the other dumb plot while I'm here. The data plot. Now, I want to stress that the plot itself is not actually dumb. In fact, I actually think there's a huge amount of potential in... Uh, I don't know what else to call this. I guess technically this would be speciesism. Or uh, speciesism? How the hell are you supposed to say that? Between... Uh, oh, I wrote down his name. Christopher Hobson or Hobbit, or whatever his name is, Christopher Dude, uh, Lieutenant Commander Christopher Dude, and Data. I don't think you're... And the way he says it is perfect. I don't think you're, you're qualified to run a ship. I mean, you wouldn't ask a Klingon to be in charge of engineering or whatever, right? So I don't think an android is, is, has the proper tools at his disposal to command a ship. Now, that is a bias, which is, of course, the point. It's even a surprisingly natural bias. The episode then fumbles it twice. First, it makes him... Uh, 
well, a dick, to be as sim simple as I can about that. Because there's a bit where he is just... I, I don't even know how to say this without sounding... This is so petty. He just starts taking action without Data's... Uh, without informing Data. This is important, by the way. Without informing Data or without his consent. So Data then says, what are you doing? You didn't even... It's inappropriate to do this without my consent. Now, that's all Data has said. This is an inappropriate thing that you're doing. So the guy, rather than saying, you're, of course, you're right, I'm sorry, I just wanted to act quickly, at which, at which point Data would have probably said, okay, it's understandable. Just remember it for next time. Instead, the guy says, cancel our orders, return the power. What are our orders, Captain? It is a complete spiteful dick move that he pulls there, to, to the point of being actually petty. I know that Starfleet personnel can be pretty petty. We've seen several examples this over the years, but this is astonishing. I am amazed that this guy is a lieutenant commander with this kind of attitude. Then, of course, Data says, yes, do exactly what you're doing, because that was the right call. As an aside, I actually skipped over this step. I like the fact that Data wanted command, because that makes sense to me. The idea that Data is trying to push, to, to expand his envelope of experience and knowledge, that makes sense. I like the idea. So then, oh, I also mentioned that he requests to transfer. Notice that's the very first thing he does, by the way. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Commander Dater. Uh, I'm, I'm in charge of you. Okay, I'd like to request a transfer. Just bam, instantly, first thing out of his mouth. <laughs> wow. So the episode's already kind of dropped the ball a little bit, but I'm still with it. It's an interesting plot. The biggest downside, and this is important, is it shouldn't have been in this episode. It has no place in this episode. It bogs it down and adds basically a C plot to an episode that already has uh, two major plots going throughout the course of it. So, technically four plots, actually, if you want to get into it, but I'll get into the fourth plot in a minute. So then the thing happens where Data's like, I may have a way to fix this. Now, what happens here is actually aggravating. No offense, Ronald D. Moore, but this is stupid. Because what happens is Data then says... It's, oh, I okay, we have to do this. I may have found a way. And he, notice he takes the time while working to explain himself to Lieutenant Commander What's-His-Face. Christopher Hobbins or whatever his name is. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to make a poo joke. And so he, he bothers to explain himself while working. Then he goes out and does the work. Now, Captain Picard contacts him, and he doesn't bother to respond. Then Picard contacts him directly, and Data doesn't respond. Later on, Data's like, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't follow orders. The ends don't justify the means. This is all needless, pointless drama. You know why? Data Picard, there may be another way to detect the Romulans. Please stand by. That took, what, four seconds? <laughs> Let's go ahead and estimate six seconds. Let's go ahead and be generous with this. Six seconds would have totally removed any needless, unnecessary drama from this scene. But instead, it's all this, oh my god, Data has to prove that he has the right to command by making the right call. Even though, if in my completely blunt opinion, he did not make the right call. Because he didn't inform his superior officer of the fact that he was doing something. Now, I will admit this. I have heard one, and only one, defense of this action over the years. And I'm curious if any of you have heard this too. It's the idea that Data didn't want to communicate this because he thought that the Romulans might be listening in on the communications and therefore didn't want to give away that he had a way to detect them. Possible. I don't buy it for a second because all Data could have then done under those circumstances is said, and I quote, Data Picard, 
Please stand by. Bam. And then Picard, who has sufficient trust in data, as established many times, most notably the episode Clues, could have then said, okay, and trusted that whatever's going on, data knows what he's doing. No drama, no violating orders, bullcrap, no lieutenant commander trying to be a, a big swinging dick. So, now we have to talk about the D plot, which is the Sela plot. For those of you not aware, Denise Crosby is the one who actually came up with the idea of Sela. Let me go ahead and say that I like the idea of Sela a lot. I just don't really care for her execution. No offense to Denise Crosby. She actually does a pretty good job of Sela in this episode. And the one other episode she appears in. I know, I know we referenced her back in uh, The Mind's Eye, which is the only other episode she makes any kind of appearance in. But for the most part, it's just this and unification. And that's it. No other presentation, no other... Pres and, and, and that right there, that's my biggest flaw with it. You have just introduced a new Romulan villain in a series in which the Romulans are generally considered to be the major enemies of the entire show. You know, the Klingons of TNG, right? So you've introduced a new focal point character, which is a very important thing when it comes to fiction. So we have a, a singular villainous type to look at and follow throughout the course of an arc. There's a reason Dukat is considered one of the major characters of DS9, alongside Wayun and the female founder, right? It's because of their recurring nature and their presentation as a face for the organization that is the actual villain. Even if it's multiple organizations in Dukat's case. So Sila had a lot of potential in the same sense. I feel the fact that they only brought her back the one time was a huge mistake. If I might be so bold, one of the things I like best about Star Trek Online, among the many things I like about Star Trek Online, is the fact that they brought Sela back and made her a recurring, relevant character for almost the entirety of the arc of STO. <laughs> like, she has been a major character for years in STO. And I think that's awesome, because it actually uses her to the full extent of her potential. Now... <laughs> Let's talk about the other problem with Sela. So Sela shows up and says this is an active regression, which it is. Gives them way too much time. I've already talked about that. And then Picard comes in and says, well, I don't see there's any significance of that. Even if she is actually Tashiar's daughter, it has no impact on our strategy. This is, the, this is the, what I call the Sela problem. Why is Sela in this episode? Now... We know why. It's because Denise Crosby had the idea and the writers liked it. But my point is, Sela adds nothing to this episode. Now, you could say her inclusion would have been everything I just mentioned. This is the introduction of the new Romulan threat, the new Tomalak. But no, because she's only seen one more time after this, so that's not it. And according to the creators themselves, and I'm not going to bring up the quote, Sela was never created to be a recurring character. So that was never the intention from the word go. So why is she in this episode? That's my point. They brought Sela in, and they had this big thing with the consequences of yesterday's Enterprise happening for no reason. I am very big on continuity. But what I am even more big on is continuity that has a frickin' point to it. If you suddenly say, hey, you recognize that jacket? It's the same jacket he was wearing 13 episodes ago. I will say, okay, why does that matter? Now, setting continuity is a thing, and it matters in its own way. But you don't bring in a major plot point. They actually pause the episode for several minutes to discuss the Sela thing and to explain the Sela thing and where she is and where she came from. And we, of course, we, the audience, know she's telling the truth. 
and, and everything there is presumed as accurate. Why in God's name did they decide to include this and have it have no impact? That's what pisses me off. The inclusion of Sela is basically just if and let me rephrase this. If you had replaced Sela with Tomalock, it wouldn't have changed anything. And that's the problem. Have this be relevant in some way. Instead, what happens is, effectively, the episode pauses because, and Ronald D. Moore commented on this, he felt he had to explain who Sela was to people who hadn't been following the series, who hadn't seen Yesterday's Enterprise and didn't know about the backstory of the series. So he felt like he had to pause the episode to explain why she's here and then get back to the episode where her relevance is not. As an aside, though, I do want to mention one other thing. You'll notice Sela is young. She is, in fact, 23 in this episode. We have that figure. Roughly 23, because she was born a year after 24 years ago. I only point that out because she is a very high-ranking member of the Romulan military. She is someone who has a general under her command. Just keep that in mind, because I'm going to be bringing that up again in Unification. Now, usually I don't like to yell at something unless I have some kind of proper criticism to give, you know, a counter-argument to give. But honestly, I'm not sure what else I could have done with Sela other than what I've already suggested, which is to make her recur more often. Within the confines of just this episode, Sela's inclusion doesn't really mean anything, and I'm not sure how to make it mean anything. With one notable exception. There is a scene where Lursa and Bator approach Worf and basically try to convert, convince him to their side. Now, I'm actually going to talk about it in a minute, because I haven't talked about the Klingon side of this episode at all yet. But I'm bringing this up because shortly thereafter, Sela just shows up on the view screens and says, Everyone, chill. He's obviously not going for it. You failed. I need info from him. Go interrogate him. Sela <laughs> shows up on a view screen, looking and sounding a whole lot like Tasha Yar, while Worf is standing right there. No reaction. That's how you make Sela matter for this episode. Have Sela not matter to Picard so much as to Worf. Someone who is far more emotionally and morally entangled in this. Someone who is allowing himself to become compromised by the fact that apparently Tasha's there. Rather than having Sela give her big speech to Picard about who she is, have her give the big speech to Worf. And this explanation of who and why and what. And have Worf disbelieve it. No, I cannot. And yet at the same time, have this obviously bother Worf, because on some level or another, he does actually believe her. And on some level or another, the very fact of being an opponent of the daughter of his friend and trusted comrade, who he actually had to take the reins of, remember, he actually had a line about, I will you know, do my best to honor her by doing her job to the best of my ability, right? Remember that? Have this impact him. Have this bother him. And, just because I like tying everything in together, have this then be more of an explanation of, uh, well, his lack of Klingonness. That he eventually decides that the fact that she happens to be the daughter of someone he knows doesn't matter any more than Taral being the son of Duras matters. Thus leading to the thing at the end and giving him an explanation for why he decides to spare Taral. Because he has decided that in a very non-Klingon manner, he doesn't agree with the sins of the father affecting the children. Make sense? That's what I would have done. So, uh, I guess that's about it. Let's go ahead and talk about the actual Klingon story. So, there's a really great scene where they've got a Klingon bar. And a whole bunch of Klingons are just running around, fighting and beating each other up and drinking and eating. Including enemies, who are enemies as recently as yesterday. 
First of all, I just want to say that that's awesome. And I mean that sincerely. That is a very Klingon thing to do. Basically, it's kind of like... Well, actually, I'm not sure there's a real-life equivalent of this. <laughs> it's the... Obviously, we, we're trying to kill each other on the battlefield, but off the battlefield, we're all warriors. We're all just fighting for glory and honor and whatever, right? So there's a strange sort of camaraderie between sides because they're all Klingons. So as, as Kern himself says, it's neutral ground. Neither side really hates or tries to kill the other. We're all just Klingons here. Who gives a crap? Yeah, And that's just such a wonderfully Klingon thing that I love it. I also want to give special praise because a lot of work was put into trying to make it look like a suitably Klingon tavern rather than a more human tavern. Uh, although I've seen human taverns that get like this in real life, but that's neither here nor there. I do want to mention one thing really quick. You ever wonder what Klingon janitorial services are like? I know that sounds like a strange thing, but speaking as someone who's worked as a janitor for many, many years, all I see is a bunch of food that's being left out, a bunch of water and wine that's being spilled all over the place, and a bunch of sweat and blood that's being splattered all over the place. Like, either they just leave that all there, which is incredibly unsanitary and gross, or they actually have a really excellent janitorial service. Just weird thought went through my mind as I was watching the episode. So then we see the bit where some random dude challenges Gowron. Now, I know I've already talked about this, but this is the first time this really is being brought to a head. So please forgive me for repeating myself. I've been discussing so many aspects of Klingon politics and culture that it's, it's easy to forget that a lot of that comes from this very episode. To wit, someone says, hey, Gowron, I think you're a crap leader, and draws a knife on him. So Gowron draws a knife on him, and they start fighting. Worf looks at this, well, from a fairly obvious perspective. This is stupid. What are you doing? We have, we're in the middle of a war. Dude, you can fight each other later, okay? Okay, do we have to do this right now? But the problem is, and this is, of course, the one, th the one thing that I really enjoy about this episode. Like, I complained about the Data stuff. I complained about the Tachyon grid, and I complained about Sela. The Klingon stuff is good, as usual for Ronald D. Moore, pretty much the writer for the Klingons. Because what we see here is that Worf is slowly coming to realize that he really isn't Klingon. That he, as I mentioned in the last episode, this arc between both episodes is about Worf coming to realize the gulf of difference between his idealistic version of Klingon culture and the reality of it. Because the reality of it, and this does make sense in a strange sort of a way, is that all challenges must be met. Galron cannot just say go away or no or whatever because then he'll be perceived as weak. His external honor, his, his, his fake honor, will be challenged and that challenge was not returned, which is as good as admitting guilt, which is as good as admitting that, yes, your challenge is correct, and I am not as good of a leader as I appear to be. Gowron has to return that challenge to prove that he is ac capable of fighting and leading his faction. And if he were to die, well, then the council would choose someone else, because that guy doesn't get to take over. That's not how that works. But if he dies, he has now proven that he was not capable of leading. Make sense? It's, it's strange in its own way, and it is wasteful. Worf is correct, but you can also see the strange logic in the fact that Gowron has to respond here. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes, and I have, a, I have a line here that literally just says, the detection fleet is stupid. Let's move down from that. Worf, later on, complains about this to Kern. And Kern is awesome because he's played by Tony Todd. But <laughs> he is. He, he does this wonderful stuff with his hands as he's talking. It's just, God, I love Tony Todd. Anyways, um, so 
someday hopefully I'll get him to, to do something for me because that would be awesome. Having someone like Tony Todd on, on, as an actor in one of my works. Worf to, goes to Kern and is basically like, this is dumb. He should put a moratorium in all challenges and we should just focus on fighting on our actual enemy. And Kern's like, what is your problem? Because Kern is thinking of it from a Klingon perspective. Worf is the one who says he should put aside the thoughts of self for the duty to the Empire first. Kern is the one who challenges and says we are fighting for glory and honor. Let me make this very clear. And this is going to sound like an indictment, but I don't mean it as such. Worf's idealized version of Klingon culture is duty and service to the Empire first, and then to the self second. Obviously, internal honor encompasses both of these. You know, his, his real honor, his sense of right and wrong. For most Klingons, that is inversed. Instead, it is the self that matters, then the Empire. Now, this explains everything about the nature of Klingon politics. Remember what I said about how many families and, and council members still support Duras? And keep in mind all that we learn about Klingon politics in the future, uh, in a few additional episodes of TNG, but most especially over on Deep Space Nine, where Klingon politics is a regular facet of, of the show, especially from, uh, I want to say, season six and onwards. Well, I mean, I guess really from season four and onwards, but you get my point. The idea is that the individual matters more than the group, which is a valid point. But it also kind of helps to explain the, for lack of a better word, corruption of the Klingon government. The fact that so many houses are still loyal to a dead house, which is known for being treasonous and, and deceptive, is something that makes sense if all they care about is what they get out of it. It also helps to explain people like Ambassador Krell back in the Mind's Eye, who clearly only really cared about himself and not the good of the organization he served. Now, I'm not saying you have to be totally selfless to serve in a political faction or fashion, but what I am saying is that if you have an entire system which is universally devoted to the self over the group, we're going to have problems, like automatically. Because at that point, what is more important is how much glory I get regardless of the cost to the Empire, which is something that comes up in Season 7 of Deep Space Nine. For some, those of you who know what I'm talking about. This, of course, then leads to the Duras sisters. Now, before I say anything else, I just want to say really quick, I think it's a damn shame we don't see more of the Duras sisters. I think they were fascinating characters and fascinating villains, and not because of the boob window, but because of the fact that both of them are clearly intelligent, conniving, and devious. They are actually kind of the... The Yang to no, that's the wrong way to put that. They're, they're the they're the one they're the only other Klingon politicians we really see throughout the course of the franchise, alongside Gowron himself. They are two people who are more than capable of adapting, manipulating, and, and conniving their way through a situation without regard to any semblance of morality or decency. They 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 do understand the concept of fake honor, but they are not adherent to it like most Klingons are and thus they are a little bit detached. They, they form a unique adversary, is what I'm trying to say. And this is best explained when, the, when Worf starts beating up the Romulan and they have start losing, what do they do? They beam out. That's not a Klingon thing to do. A normal Klingon politician would look at this situation and try to prove that he is, uh, is strong, strong or whatever by either dying gloriously against the incoming forces of Kern or trying to take down Worf, or would try to, you know, as a last action, get revenge, probably by killing Worf. 
but neither of those are what Lursa and Bator do. They just think about themselves and getting the hell out of Dodge, which is a very non-Klingon thing. Just, I, I think they could have done more with them. Anyways, but I bring them up because Bator, well, Lursa and Bator, make an offer to Worf that virtually any other Klingon would have taken in a heartbeat. You become mated to Bator. No, that's not the offer. <laughs> I mean, she's a very attractive woman. That's not what I mean. Because think about that for a second. That means he now effectively becomes the regent for the chancellor-in-waiting, Tural. That means Worf would be handed effectively the reins of the Empire alongside his new wife and her sister. He would be given a tremendous amount of power, position, and prestige, and would be given glory and external honor in untold amounts as they restructure the Klingon Empire under the new connection with the Romulans. And, of course, this would inevitably lead to war, with the Federation, once the Romulans finally pushed that way, which would lead to even more glory and honor and blah, blah, blah. It's basically everything a typical Klingon would want, politician or no. Of course, Worf doesn't want any of that. He venerates internal honor over external honor, and the Empire and his service and duty and responsibility over his own personal desires. Not that I think he wanted this anyways, but my point being, he is the absolute worst person to make that offer to. I think it's actually funny that Sela calls it off so quickly. She's like, no, no, you failed. Because she's right. There was no way Worf was ever going to agree with this. So, and of course Worf has... I, I kind of mentioned this before because, you know, Worf and the Sela thing I mentioned. But it's worth noting that Worf has quite literally zero reaction to seeing Sela on the view screen. He just kind of looks at it like, okay. Like it was just another Romulan. Sure... I should mention as an aside, uh, Data is very harsh and practically yells at the lieutenant commander several times. Several people had issues with that. According to Brent Spiner himself, this was being done as a form of emulation, which I firmly believe. Data is more than capable of, of portraying the equivalent of emotion if he has basically seen it happen. He is effectively just purely emulating at that point. Probably my favorite example of that is in, uh, in theory, when he was yelling at Jenna uh, because, oh, this is all your fault. And then he immediately goes back to his normal self because all he was doing was yelling. You know, he was repeating what he was supposed to do. Thus the idea here that he's repeating what he's seen Picard and Riker do in the past. So, Lursa and Bator escape. There's this bit where Toral says, no! And I only point this out. This is a strange thing to comment on. Too often fiction uses the no thing. Way too often. I, I actually find it a little bit aggravating, if I'm being completely blunt. But I also bring it up because too often actors don't know how to say that line. Tural here, the guy who plays Tural, I didn't look up his name, actually does a really good job. You could, because you can just hear in his voice, ah, like just the panic as he realizes what's happening, as he has now been abandoned to the wolves. It's a nice bit, and I just wanted to give praise for that. So... I've had some people ask, hang on, why did exposing the Romulans matter? Well, Klingon politics... What? It's a Klingon political civil war episode. What do you want me to talk about? Klingon politics is all about appearance and how you respond to things. In other words, what I have universally been referring to as external honor. I used to call it fake honor, but I've kind of started adopting the term external honor to refer to this. Because that's what other people use. And I don't want to be a complete obstinate person. A little bit obstinate, not complete. So, if, 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 when, when it is revealed openly that the 
Duras support you know, network, that the people who were supporting Duras, that the Duras family itself was specifically being funded and supplied by the Romulans, keep in mind most of their supporters, most of their political allies within the Klingon Empire, probably knew that. But now that it has been publicly shown, well, now they can't be seen supporting that. And thus, a family... You can see how this is almost typical nobility, isn't it? Oh, my God, he's been supported by the Ottomans. I would, I would never accept Ottoman support myself. Hide all the Ottoman gold. There we go. Uh, no, I denounce you for... for yeah, right? It's the exact same concept. They see this and they say, Oh, well, now we have no more... We, we basically cannot attach ourselves to the Duras family anymore. Because if we did so, we would now basically lose all of our external face, all of our appearances, all our public capacity for saying that we are a house of honor. Because we knowingly supporting Romulans, no one's going to accept that. The Romulans are simply too hated on a universal scale amongst the Klingon Empire, culturally as well as politically. So, that's the end of that. Then Worf is offered Toral's life. I've already made my comment on that. I feel like they don't really build up to that moment quickly enough. It's, it is still part of the overall arc of Worf acknowledging that he is not a Klingon. Instead, that he is a son of Moog. Of course, leading to that trope, or excuse me, that Lorium that I mentioned earlier. I do still enjoy this episode. I really do, because there's some good stuff in here, and it's pretty much all the Klingon stuff. It's just, I feel like everything else is like a jab in my brain every time I watch this episode. Like, ah, come on, really? <sighs> I do want to mention one other side thing. This is the second instance of a fleet in Star Trek history. I know what you're saying, huh? Well, the first was back in Wolf 359. The second is here. They have 23 ships uh, arrayed for this. And I only point that out because, not only speaking as a ship guy, but someone who is always bothered that Star Trek tends to handle ship engagements in the one-on-one -on -one or occasionally two-on-one -on -one kind of a level, it always bothered me that we never really saw fleets do anything in Star Trek. I only point this out because this was an important step for me for leading to what would eventually become Improbable Cause over on Deep Space Nine when fleets actually started to become a thing in Star Trek. Regardless, I hope you've enjoyed. Welcome to Season 5. I'll see you next time. Kapla!